All right, John 6, verses 35 through 51. We're picking up in the middle of this discourse Jesus is giving. In verse 35, we see the crux of the issue. Follow with me in your copy of God's Word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Would you please bow with me? Father, We thank you this morning for Jesus, the bread of life who has come down from heaven. We ask you, Lord, to recognize or for us to recognize that he alone is the way we know you. And that only through Christ can we find that for which our souls hunger for. So this morning, Lord, I pray that we would experience the fullness of Jesus as much as we can bear let it be, Lord. Open our eyes to your glory. Open our hearts to love you. And open our minds to know you more. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And the church said, Amen. It's always dangerous to use an illustration for movies because as I'm getting older, a lot of my illustrations would date myself, to say the least. But I feel confident in using this to kind of get us going in the right direction because this film, although it came out in 1980, is still widely seen today and it is the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now if you haven't seen it, don't worry, we still love you. Uh, This film tells the Chronicles the story of Indiana Jones, an archaeologist who is an adventurer. And the particular plot of this film tells how Indiana Jones is searching for the lost Ark of the Covenant. And it's a race literally for the fate of the world because the Nazis are seeking the ark also. Close to midway through the film, Indy and his companions are shocked to find that the Germans 
have started digging for the ark. You see, the Germans had found a map, and they believe they have found the place where the ark was located, and they have started digging, and Indy and his companions are shocked until they realize something. The Germans only have part of the map. Therefore, they are digging in the wrong place. They will not find what they're looking for. Now, the reason I wanted to start with this little clip from that movie is just like Indiana Jones and even like the Germans, we too are searching for a treasure. The treasure we're searching for is God. And whether we realize it or not, every human being has been made with a desire for God. We may not phrase it like that. Some people talk about a search for the transcendent, a search for something other than this world. That's a hunger for God. Some people talk about it in terms of finding meaning in their life. That's a search for God. As you and I search for the treasures of joy and happiness and peace and security, all those are, are ways we are searching for God. So the question becomes, what map are we using to find those treasures? Some begin by following the, the map of self. You hear this a lot in our culture. If you want true joy, it's within yourself. If you want true fulfillment, be who you are. Follow your heart. Follow your inclinations. Follow your intuitions. Following that is much like following a new GPS that my son Samuel and I were using when we took our trip to South Carolina. For some reason, this GPS had been calibrated incorrectly. So even though we knew without a shadow of a doubt we were driving through the state of South Carolina, that GPS had us in the state of Kentucky. It was incorrectly calibrated. If we are following our hearts as a map, we're following a map that is calibrated incorrectly. Scripture says there's a way that seems right to us, but it ends in death. So that's only half a map. Some believe in finding this treasure through stuff. The longing that we feel in our hearts, the emptiness, the longing for transcendence, it's believed we can fill that void by stuff. Shopping therapy. I was waiting for the groan. Yeah, you feel bad? Just get on Amazon. Feeling a little down and depressed? There's something out there that can lift you up. The only problem with following that map as a means to get the treasure we long for is this. It's like filling a cavity in your tooth with bubble gum. It won't solve the problem. In fact, it will only make it worse. Some follow the map of significance. They believe that the way to find the transcendence for which we long for is simply to find something that lifts us up and above the average. Something that will cause our names to live on, whether it be a, a job we have or accomplishments that we achieve or applause that we garner in life. Position and pay are the directions they follow to find meaning. I was very curious to hear an interview that was conducted with the former Beatles star Paul McCartney. He said, and I quote, It seems to me that no matter how famous you are, no matter how accomplished, how many awards you get, you're always still thinking there's somebody out there who's better than you. He goes on to say, I'm often reading a magazine and hearing about someone's new record, and I think, oh boy, that's going to be better than me. 
It's a very common thing. The interviewer was shocked by this. I mean, this is one of the Beatles, for heaven's sake. So he says to Paul McCartney, But sir, Paul, you've had success in so many dimensions of music. You really feel a competitive insecurity with somebody else coming out with a record? And McCartney responded without missing a beat, Yes. He said, I know I should be able to look at my accolades and say, come on, that's enough. But there's still this voice in the back of my brain that goes, no, you could be better. This person over there is excelling. Do you hear the insecurity there? To achieve worldwide fame, but to say, that's not enough. You see, each of those maps are only partial. They will not lead us to the true security, the true peace, the true joy, the true transcendence we are seeking for. Well, this morning, I want you to hear from John 6 that Jesus Christ is the map that guides us to eternal life. In fact, He Himself is not only the map, He is eternal life Himself. This is the point of this discourse in chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins with this miracle of transforming these five loaves and three fish into this massive feast. And Jesus uses that miracle as a platform to talk about how he gives the food that really satisfies. Crowds have followed him to Capernaum. In verse 59 we find that he's teaching in the synagogue. Now the crowd that is gathered around Jesus, they want him to prove that he's the Messiah by continually giving them more and more food. That's their question they're putting before him. If you're the Messiah, give us what we need here and now. And they use Moses and manna as the model. Their argument is like this. Moses was the Messiah that led Israel out of Egypt. Moses provided manna for Israel. So if you're the Messiah, Jesus, you provide for us manna just like Moses did, and then we'll believe. So Jesus answers them. Look back to verse 32. Jesus says, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, you're missing the point. God provided manna to sustain them temporarily in the wilderness. Now God has given something superior to that to provide for you the sustenance and the transcendence and the love, joy, peace, security that you need from now on into eternity. So the people ask for this. Verse 34. Give us this bread always. Let it keep coming. And that's when Jesus utters the crux of the matter, the main point. I am the bread of life. What you're looking for, he says, is found in me. The longing you need, the hunger you are having, the thirst you have for meaning and love and security and peace and joy. He says, I am the one that can meet all of those. And when he says, I am the bread of life, he is saying, I am the bread that gives life. If you want life, it is found in me. And there are four things that Jesus teaches us about the true life that he gives in this passage. The first is found in verse 35. The true life that Jesus gives is eternal. That's the first thing we think of when we think about the life-giving bread. He says very clearly, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying that you will enter into a relationship with God that sustains you, not just now, but on into eternity. This is emphasized in verse 40 when Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have what? Eternal life. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. But if we stop there with our understanding of eternal life and we think only of it in terms of quantity, of of a timeless existence, we miss the point. Eternal life is not just about living forever. Eternal life is about a quality of life that God gives. Verse 35 brings this out. Jesus continues this metaphor. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is saying the true fulfillment of what we desire is found in Christ. The physical need for food and water is used to represent our deeper need for love, meaning, salvation. And all those come about through a relationship with God. And notice he says partaking of this bread fulfills that once and for all. There's not a need for this always giving. He says they will never hunger. They will not thirst. He's saying you only come to me once. You only partake of this once. And you experience this. Now this truth is most poignantly illustrated in what took place the night before Jesus was crucified. Jesus does something shocking after they've enjoyed Passover together. He stands up and he puts on an apron. And then he kneels in front of each of the disciples and he begins washing their feet. The lowest of the lowest tasks, the most menial task a servant could do. Jesus does it. He comes to Peter. Peter says, no, Lord. You will not wash my feet. I should wash yours. You're not going to do this. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Peter wants to be with Jesus. So he says, Jesus, wash all of me. Please. I can almost in my mind see Jesus smile as he says, Peter, washing your feet's enough. That's enough. That's the same point here. Jesus is saying coming to him and believing and trusting him fulfills the longings we have from that point onward. The second emphasis found in this verse, these verses is how we get the bread of life. He talks about hunger, thirsting. He talks about eating and drinking. Now the important thing is to recognize this. Those truths, those ideas of speaking, of, of, of drinking and eating are communicating, believing. Because notice Jesus goes on to talk about whoever comes to him, whoever believes in him. So this idea of eating the flesh of Jesus, drinking the blood of Jesus, are simply metaphors of talking about believing and coming to him. And it's important to keep that in mind as you read through this. Jesus uses this language specifically to say that we eat upon him, we drink of him as we come to him and as we have faith in him. And he does this to fulfill what was written over seven hundred years ago by the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah wrote these words, he said, come everyone who thirst. This is the Lord speaking by the way. Come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isn't that interesting? How in the world do you buy milk and bread and honey if you don't have money? Unless someone else has paid the price. 
Unless you are coming humbly to simply receive in faith trusting. And then he asked this question. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy. Do you hear this, this echoing of what, happens in, what happened in John 6? Why are you seeking things of this world that don't fill you? Why are you expending your life seeking and working for that which doesn't satisfy? And then he says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Jesus in his words is saying that what Isaiah spoke of is fulfilled in Jesus. Come to him and experience the eternal life that is only found in God. And that is found by coming and believing. Jesus then moves on to say this life, the true life that is given is not just eternal. It is secure. Look at the words of Jesus in verses 37 through 39. All that the Father gives will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have not come from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. Put another way, when Jesus says, all the Father gives to me will come to me and I will not cast out, Jesus is saying, I'm going to hold on to those that the Father gives to me. Those that come to me, I will never let go of them. Jesus will preserve you. He will keep you. That means that as a believer, our security for our salvation and our eternal life is found in Jesus. This is one of the verses that leads us to believe in the perseverance of the saints, the security of the believer that once salvation is gained by faith in Christ, it cannot be lost. Max Lucado puts it like this. He tells a story of getting a letter one day from his insurance company. It seems that, that uh, Pastor Lucado had run into some problems. One too many speeding tickets, one too many fender benders, and his insurance company had written him to say, well... I just don't think we can insure you anymore. We're dropping you from coverage. As Lucado read that, he began to reflect, and the Lord let him see a spiritual connection. There are a lot of people who live in fear of receiving such a letter from God. Some think they already have. Lucado then imagines, imagines a correspondence that goes like this, straight from the Pearly Gates Underwriting Division goes like this. Dear Mrs. Smith, I'm writing in response to this morning's request for forgiveness. I'm sorry to inform you that you have reached your quota of sins. Our records show that since employing our services you have erred seven times in the area of greed and your prayer life is substandard when compared to others of like age and circumstance. Further review reveals that your understanding of doctrine is in the lower 20 percentile and you have excessive tendencies to gossip. Because of your sins, you are a high-risk candidate for heaven. You understand that grace has its limits. Jesus sends his regrets and kindest regards and hopes that you will find some other form of coverage. Church, you will never receive a message like that from God. Never, ever. And I say that not based upon the fact that we can be good enough, not based on the fact that you and I can merit, but based upon the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is his will, that I should lose nothing. 
So the only way we could lose our salvation is if Jesus is disobedient to God or if Jesus fails. And neither one of those will ever happen, period. So our security lies not in our ability to attain a level of righteousness. Our security rests in that Jesus will always be faithful to the Father. Therefore, he will hold on forever, for eternity, to those whom the Father gives him. Now, because we have security in Jesus' obedience. So we've seen already the true life that he gives is eternal, it is secure, and it is one of hope. Look at the end of verses 39, end of verse 40, and end of verse 44. Notice he says at the end of verse 39, not only will he not lose any that the Father has given him, but he will raise it up on the last day. Look at the end of verse 40. Jesus repeats the same thing. I will raise him up on the last day. And if that wasn't enough, look at the end of verse 44. I will raise him up on the last day. Do you notice a pattern here? Jesus is saying that you and I will still be living in a world that is is suffering the effects and the consequences of sin and one of those effects and consequences of sin is death so if we begin to think that death has conquered and separated us from God that somehow Jesus has lost Jesus says no you have the promise of the resurrection that Jesus will bring about because Jesus will complete the task that God has given him and his task is not just to save your soul his task is to redeem your body If Jesus doesn't redeem our bodies, as it talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, then Satan has a place where he can boast to God and say, well, you may have saved everything else, but I destroyed their physical being. But Jesus says, no, therefore, because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, physically, bodily resurrected, you and I have confidence that the cemetery is not our final resting place. You and I have confidence that the grave will not have victory. You and I have confidence that that which is buried corruptible will be raised incorruptible. That which is mortal will be raised in immortality. That which is raised that had been perishable will be raised imperishable. Therefore, he says, believer, have hope. He who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of complete in Christ Jesus so when us preacher types stand at the cemetery and we talk about the final resting place of a believer you can say no that's just like a rest area the day is coming when Jesus Christ returns and the dead will rise have hope have hope You see, the true life that Jesus gives will not be conquered by death because Jesus has conquered death. So the true life that Jesus gives is one of eternal life, one of security, one of comfort, of hope. And the final thing I would point out is this. The true life that Jesus gives is one of confidence. Verses 41 through 46. Now the Jews that are hearing this begin to grumble. Notice they're upset because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. So they say to him, wait, wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus? We, we know Joseph and Mary. So how in the world can he say that he comes down from heaven? All they can see is the, the, this, this physical, physical, physicality, this lineage of Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Jesus' answer seems enigmatic. Verses 43 and 44. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws 
I think Jesus is addressing the real issue behind their thinking. The Jews were thinking that if Jesus is really the Messiah from heaven, they would know it and they would believe. So if they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, surely he can't be the Messiah. So Jesus basically says to them this, just because you haven't believed does not mean God's work has failed. Just because you haven't believed does not mean that Jesus is not the Messiah. In fact, their disbelief tells more about them than it does Jesus. Because look at what Jesus says in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In fact, this is something that he states plainly from what he said earlier. He said, this is, this is verse 39. This is the will of him that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. What this means is that if we come to believe in Jesus, it is because God has called us to that belief. This is the doctrine of election. I know it's a doctrine that makes us uncomfortable to talk about because it brings up so many issues, so many questions. However, in reading the scripture, we can't just skip over these verses. To me, I take great comfort in knowing that salvation is rooted in the actions of God. And this is why. I can't save myself. The scripture says that your salvation is not of any work. It's the grace of God. Now think about that for a moment. If I am saved because I was smart enough to figure it out, then haven't I earned it? If I'm saved because I was humble enough to recognize my need, have I not done a work to earn it? But if God is the one that initiates, regenerates, calls us unto Him, then God gets the glory. And that's exactly how He works. It is not God forcibly bringing someone to be saved that may fight against Him. Look at what He says in verse 45. It is written in the prophets... And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So how does God do this? By enlightening and illuminating. God turns the heart toward him as Jesus is proclaimed. Look at verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Who is from God? Jesus. So Jesus, as he is proclaimed, as he is lifted up, draws people unto himself. Now, I know this brings up questions. For example, what about the call to believe and the call to come? Does this teaching in verse 44 mean that there is no responsibility? The Bible holds out both. The Bible says that it is God who saves, but then it also says that we are to come, we are to choose. Charles Spurgeon once said, I don't try to reconcile these two because why do you reconcile friends? Theologian R.B. Kuyper put it like this. He said, imagine that there is a pulley at the very top of the ceiling. And there's a rope that is put down through that pulley so that two sides of the same rope are hanging down. One side of the rope is human responsibility and the other side is God's sovereignty. And you're given the responsibility to climb that rope up to the pulley. Well, what happens if you grab, say, just one side of that rope, say, human responsibility, and you start trying to climb? It's not a trick question. It doesn't work very well, does it? 
If you grab the other side and start to pull, it doesn't work very well. The only way you could climb such a rope is to have both firmly in grasp. To say it is God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And you say, well, pastor, how do you make those things work together? I can't and I don't have to. That is God's work. But I take great comfort in knowing that there is confidence that God's purpose, His will, shall be accomplished. There came a point for me where I stopped trying to figure out how to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and just praise God that our salvation rests with Him. And to trust Him. To know that He is working. To know you have confidence in life. You have confidence as you witness that God's work will be done. This past Thursday, the world celebrated the 75th commemoration of the D-Day invasion. It was very stirring hearing the testimonies, the stories. Did you know the night before the invasion launched, General Eisenhower sat down and he wrote two letters. One letter was if the invasion was successful. And in his manner, he gave all the credit to the soldiers that they carried out this great task. The second letter was one in case it failed. And Eisenhower took the blame that he had not planned and prepared enough. But the point was this. The outcome was uncertain. Up in the air. Church, the outcome is never up in the air when God is involved. Never! There are not two letters where God says, well, if my plan works, this, if it fails, this. God's yes is always yes in Jesus Christ. So therefore, we don't have to be anxious or worried. It is God at work. So that's what eternal life is, or this life that He gives. True life is eternal, it is secure, it is hopeful, it is confident in God, and it all centers upon Jesus. Verses 45 through 51, Jesus comes back to really reiterate what He had said before, that He is the living bread that comes down from heaven, that eternal life is found in Him, that if you try to subsist on the things of this world, you will be hungry and it will not last. But if you come to Him, and eat of this bread, you will live forever. Look at the end of verse 51. He says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's talking about his body and in a reference to his death. When Jesus died, he took God's wrath on our behalf because of our sin. So that all who would believe on him and come to him will be forgiven and restored in a right relationship with God. And that's the invitation I give to you this morning. Come, believe, taste and see. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me if you will.